Hey guys, welcome back. I'm Faye. And I'm Nick. And this is Creogs Over, Over Coffee. Coffee. So today we'll be talking about the management of gestational diabetes, and this is our second part in our three-part special on gestational diabetes. So hopping back into it, our last episode, we spent a lot of time on diagnosis of gestational diabetes and the why we care aspect. Today, we're going to focus on the management of gestational diabetes. So Nick, why should we treat gestational diabetes? We talked about the complications, but can we do anything about them? Yeah, so I mean, there really is a good way to reduce the badness, so to speak, that comes along with gestational diabetes. And we can kind of look to the research to guide us in how effective this really can be. So one study is a 2005 study called the Australian Carbohydrate Intolerance Study in Pregnant Women. And this was a thousand women where they looked at treating gestational diabetes with a decrease and a composite primary outcome of serious newborn complications. So these included complications like perinatal death, shoulder dystocia, birth trauma, nerve palsy. They found that treatment of gestational diabetes reduced the primary composite outcome of all of these newborn complications, as well as demonstrated a decrease in the rate of preeclampsia and decreased the frequency of infants that were considered large for gestational age or who had a birth weight greater than 4,000 grams. Mm -hmm. Now, in the United States, there was a similar study performed by the MFMU network with the NIH that looked at 958 women. And again, they looked at a primary composite outcome of perinatal death, neonatal hypoglycemia, elevated umbilical cord C-peptide level, and birth trauma. Now, in the United States study, there was not a decrease in this primary composite outcome. However, there was a decreased rate of LGA, decreased uh, rates of birth weight greater than 4,000 grams, and decreased neonatal fat mass. And then also great things that came out for the mom were decreased rate of cesarean section, decreased rate of shoulder dystocia, and decreased rate of hypertensive disorders. So I think, Faye, when you kind of distill those two things down, there's a lot of positives to the treatment aspect here. Yeah, definitely. How should we go about treating gestational diabetes? We can break this down into both antenatal and intrapartum. So let's talk about antenatal first. First thing is you want to know what are mom's sugar. Traditionally at our institution, we check blood sugars four times a day, a fasting and then three postprandial glucoses. So your fasting glucose is actually predictive of increased neonatal fat mass in the offspring. And so fasting glucose is less than 95 milligrams per deciliter should be the target. Postprandial glucose has been associated with better glycemic control compared to preprandial glucose, and that's why we use the postprandial value. Mm. Usually, we at our institution do a two hour postprandial glucose, so that should be less than 120. But at some places, they do a one hour postprandial, and that should be less than 140. So now that you have those blood glucose values, you want to figure out whether or not mom needs some kind of treatment. Usually, we'll start with non-pharmacologic treatments, and these are things like lifestyle interventions. So can you control mom's blood sugars just with diet and exercise? Have the patient meet with a nutritionist or dietitian. They will recommend that they start a diet, and usually they'll tell them to limit their carbohydrates to about 30 to 40% of their daily caloric intake. 
Unfortunately, there's not great data for this. There was a randomized trial of 99 women with gestational diabetes, and they followed a low glycemic index nutrition plan um, versus a conventional high fiber diet. They found very similar pregnancy outcomes. The other thing, of course, with lifestyle changes is exercise. Unfortunately, published articles really also have small sample sizes in pregnant women. So we then come to pharmacologic treatment, which we have a lot more data for. So first and foremost, we have to talk about insulin. Ah, yes, insulin. The advantages of insulin is that we know that it doesn't really cross the placenta. The disadvantages for your patients is that they have to inject themselves sometimes twice a day, and most people don't like to do that. Faye, when would you start recommending um, insulin therapy? So as we talked about, with the fasting blood glucoses, they should be less than 95, one hour less than 140, and two hour postprandial less than 120. If these blood sugars are consistently, meaning more than half the time, greater than these values, then you should consider starting insulin. Got it. The way that we usually start them is we look to see uh, where they are in their pregnancy, but we usually start between 0.7 to 1.0 units per kg daily, and this is a divided regimen of long versus short acting depending on which values are elevated. And then on our website, we'll be sure to include kind of a beginner's guide, so to speak, of starting insulin in pregnancy because um, it's definitely a skill that every resident should have some knowledge of. Okay, so we talked about insulin. What about oral medicines? Right now, the language really is that oral medications are not preferred uh, for the treatment of gestational diabetes, and there are a number of reasons for that, and we'll hopefully get into some of the controversy and some of the promise of oral medications in our last episode, an interview with Dr. Kustan. The two medicines, though, that have the most study behind them in pregnancy are metformin and gliburide. Recall that metformin, to start, is a biguanide that inhibits gluconeogenesis, so the production of glucose in the liver, um, and it also stimulates glucose uptake in the liver as well as in peripheral tissues. With an oral agent, you don't have to take shots. That's awesome. But disadvantages to metformin in particular that it crosses the placenta, and some studies have shown actually that metformin may concentrate equally, if not more so, in the fetus than in the mom. And thus, the long-term outcomes of metformin therapy really are not known. So I think the jury's still out on metformin therapy. The other common one that you may encounter is gliburide. Gliburide, recall, is a sulfonylurea medication. So sulfonylureas increase insulin secretion as well as, to some degree, increase insulin sensitivity in the peripheral tissues. But with sulfonylureas, the number one concerning side effect is an increased risk of hypoglycemia. Additionally, in the context of pregnancy, macrosomia can be increased when compared to insulin therapy. Bottom line, too, is to remember the fact that these oral anti-diabetic meds are not approved by the FDA for the treatment of gestational diabetes. And again, these still, to a large degree, are under study. You should put in the caveat, though, that there was a recent SMFM statement that said that metformin can be considered as an alternate first-line therapy, and there was also another article that came out in AJOG in response to that. So we will be covering that a little bit more in our third episode on GDM. So Faye, I know we talked a lot about therapy and we talked a lot about what mom has to do. What do we need to do when thinking about the fetus and monitoring the fetus? Yeah, so fetal monitoring is definitely something that you should think about in your patients with either gestational diabetes or pregestational diabetes. We know that in patients with 
pregestational diabetes, there is an increased risk of fetal demise related to suboptimal glycemic control. And so there is suspicion that poor glycemic control in people with GDM may also have an increased risk of fetal demise. And so usually in patients who have poorly controlled or medication-controlled gestational diabetes, at our institution, we initiate uh, testing for the baby. For us, it would be twice-weekly NST AFIs at 32 weeks. However, ACOG's Practice Bulletin 190 on gestational diabetes says that there still isn't a preferred way of testing and that it can vary by institution. Also, studies haven't demonstrated increased stillbirth in diet-controlled gestational diabetes before 40 weeks of gestation. So at our institution, we actually don't necessarily get testing on these babies. All right, Nick, what about delivery? Yeah, so... Let's start about when we deliver. So people who have good glycemic control, we usually don't deliver them before 39 weeks of gestation. In patients with poor control of gestational diabetes, there should be consideration to deliver these patients earlier, but there's not particularly clear guidance as to what poor control is, and there's not also great guidance of how much earlier you should deliver them. Right. We know that... We have to weigh the risk of prematurity with the risk of stillbirth um, that is much higher in these patients. Generally speaking, the delivery for poorly controlled gestational diabetics should fall between 37 weeks and 38 and 6 weeks, but some may even consider with very poorly controlled diabetes to deliver in the late preterm period from 34 weeks to 36 and 6 weeks, especially if a patient is failing in hospital attempts at glycemic control. Mm -hmm. What do you think about how we should deliver these women? Well, just like most pregnancies, we would prefer if these patients are able to deliver vaginally, provided that there's no contraindication to vaginal delivery. However, if the estimated fetal weight in a patient with gestational diabetes or pregestational diabetes is greater than 4,500 grams, you can consider a primary cesarean section. And that's different from women who don't have gestational diabetes. Remember, that number actually increases to 5,000 grams. And what about during labor, Faye? Do you monitor blood glucose during labor? How do you monitor it during labor? So we should be monitoring blood glucose during labor. Um, and it should be monitored closely because you want to make sure that your patient isn't becoming hyperglycemic or hypoglycemic. The risk of the patient becoming hyperglycemic is that there is increased insulin production in the fetus and a higher risk of hypoglycemia in the neonate. Unfortunately, how closely we monitor them isn't really outlined for us either. Got it. With someone who has pregestational diabetes, some recommendations have said in the active phase of labor, we should be checking their blood sugars every hour. And in someone who has gestational diabetes, at our institution, in the active phase, if they are diet controlled and they have pretty well controlled sugars, we tend to check between every two or even every four hours. And if they're medication controlled, every one hour and can consider spacing that out to every two hours if their blood sugars have been well controlled throughout the active part of labor. And how about goals for glycemic control? Like, are we? Aim, is there any reason to like aim higher? You know, like, should they keep their blood sugar around one fifty, two hundred while in labor, or are we trying to keep it tighter? There are really no proven goals. We know that intrapartum glucose levels greater than one hundred forty to one hundred eighty are consistently associated with neonatal hypoglycemia and increased risk of ketoacidosis in the mom. However. Our goals usually is to maintain their blood sugar between 70 and 126. So a lot of things that really are going to vary by your institution, but we have some loose goals in mind, I guess. Correct. Finally, what about after, Nick? 
Yeah, so Faye, as you mentioned, you know, with gestational diabetic women, about 70% of them will go on to develop type 2 diabetes uh, the 25 years after their delivery. And they do have an increased risk of having persistent diabetes immediately postpartum. So the recommendations currently are to give a two-hour 75-gram glucose load um, and do a two-hour glucose tolerance test for women who are affected by gestational diabetes to rule out the possibility that there may be occult type 2 diabetes. There are studies that are ongoing looking at shortening that interval to say that maybe we can do this even while patients are still in the hospital to improve follow-up rates with this. All right, Nick, so I think that brings us to the end of gestational diabetes as we are going to cover it. Um, so let's go ahead and summarize. Absolutely. The why should we treat gestational diabetes? Again, the bottom line is we're going to reduce the badness. We're going to reduce everything that's bad for the baby associated with diabetes. We're going to reduce everything that's bad for the mom with diabetes too. How do we treat GDM antenatally? We talked about blood glucose monitoring, fasting, and postprandial glucoses. And we also talked about trying to control blood sugars with diet as well as with pharmacologic treatment, either with insulin, which is first line, or potentially with metformin and gliburide, um, but the jury is still out on those oral medications. With respect to fetal monitoring, again, it varies by institution. Our institution starts with NST AFIs twice weekly in patients requiring medication for control of gestational diabetes, starting at 32 weeks. Again, varies by institution. Some institutions, especially in well-controlled diabetes, may not monitor at all. In terms of delivering these patients, if they have good glycemic control, usually they'll be delivered after 39 weeks. But in poor control, that can be shifted earlier to the early term or even late preterm period. And we should be trying to deliver these patients vaginally if possible, though if estimated fetal weight is greater than 4,500 grams, a primary cesarean section can be considered. During labor, be sure to monitor blood glucoses, and depending on how well-controlled diabetes is and whether there's medication involved, may need to monitor it more closely or less closely. Again, during the active phase of labor, try and maintain your blood glucoses between 70 and 126. Intrapartum glucose levels greater than 140 are consistently associated with neonatal hypoglycemia. And finally, after pregnancy, a six-weeks, two-hour postpartum GTT can be done to rule out occult type 2 diabetes. And that's all for diabetes until our special interview episode with Dr. Kustan, so stay tuned. Once again, I'm Faye. And I'm Nick. This has been Kriogs Over Coffee. If you like this episode, go ahead and give us a rating and review on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or whatever podcatcher you use to listen to us. And feel free to reach out to us as well. Again, we're on Twitter at Kriogs Over Cough number one, on Facebook at Kriogs Over Coffee. You can also check out our website to find additional resources for your studying, www.kriogsovercoffee.com. And finally, if you want to reach out to us directly via email, if you have some thoughts on what we should cover next, Creogs over coffee at gmail.com is where you can find us. <laughs> <laughs>